0: Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein book club and uh, we're at a turning point I guess, in this podcast, in that we are finally uh, getting to uh, clearly the post-World War Two era of Heinlein's writings with the uh, juveniles. Um, and the first of the juveniles, Rocket Ship Galileo. We, we did talk about a couple stories that he wrote, uh, maybe, you know, in 1946 or so. Uh, Freeman and to the bathroom of her own. Those weren't published till later, though. I just threw them in um, because they, they fit more of that period of his of his writing. Um, but now we're going to get to uh, the novel a year Heinlein that uh, that we we know so well from the from the fifties and and early sixties now it's a bit unfortunate we have to start with rocket ship galileo because uh I, i've actually read quite a few of the juveniles um thanks to the sff audio podcast which i've invited been invited on many times um but i haven't been on as much lately um, because mostly because of the books i think and my schedules made it rough the that kind of doing it in the middle of the night has been rough but check out that podcast it's a good one um it's it's dealing with all that content you might get another. Uh, book podcasts um kind of something i'm trying to do too on this this podcast kind of look at look at things more systematically and look at thing they don't do that obviously but they they um they do look at works that that aren't as maybe commonly explored um especially on in science fiction fantasy podcasts that are on today um but so i i re- the ones I looked at with them would be like, I, I did Red Planet, um, Between Planets, uh, Farmer in the Sky, Rocket Ship Galileo, maybe one other, I, I forget, but that, that's, that's a, like at least half of them, right? Um, and I know they did, a, I think they did almost all the juveniles at some point in that podcast, so um this of the ones i've read is my least favorite i think it's just i don't think Heinlein quite knew what he was doing with the juveniles quite yet it's um it's obviously he's trying to reorient his audience to to younger male i mean it's very male it's very young it's very for boys right there 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 are female characters here but our protagonists in this one and most of the juveniles with some exceptions are men um young men you know, high school age or a little bit older, um moving into adulthood. So that's the theme that's going to come up again and again in these uh in these novels is kind of the transition to adulthood. And and sometimes it's done quite well and organically where you have like one foot in youth and one foot in a, in the responsibility of adulthood. I think it's done really well in Like Farmer in the Sky uh or Between Planets and even in Red Planet. I, I think it's done fairly well in those. In Rocketship Galileo, it's a little more uh contrived didactic and 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 kind of just spelled out it's kind of there's a lot of showing not telling or there's a lot of telling not showing i mean to say just a lot of hindline just being you know trying to say oh i really need to write a book for for young impressionable men i need to set them on the right course and teach them some values of values of education and, and and math and and hard work and risk-taking and and virtue it's very virtuous right and i think that's runs through all the juveniles i read but here it's it's much more we we literally have an adult figure here and of course that's something that's in many of the other novels as well but here we have an adult figure actually like laying down lessons to you know like one of my one thing that strikes me strikes me in the first half of rocket ship galileo which I, is all I'm going to talk about in this this episode. Next time I'll talk about the second half of it, which does get more interesting, I think, with the Nazis on the moon stuff. Um, but what we have here is I, we have so we have that that Cargraves, the the uncle, one guy's one kid's uncle. It's hard to keep these boys separate. They do have defined characters, but it's not they're not interesting enough to actually commit the mental resources to keep them straight um but one of their uncles is this guy Cargraves and he's like a nuclear physicist scientist who has this patent on nuclear energy using nuclear energy for so as a source of propulsion and he, he like very implausibly gravitates to this uh rocket ship club of high school kids just about to graduate high school uh, on their way to college says well you know if i use you to go to the moon it'll be cheaper uh, and I can kind of exploit your labor, essentially. But you'll be heroes, and and, you, and you'll continue your education. And you'll come out a bit smarter and and in a better position in your lives. Anyways, that's that's the story we sort of get here. But uh, there, there's moments where it's very very didactic where. One's like, there's one scene where it's like, well, we don't want to tell our parents. Why don't you just tell me your parents? You're the smart scientist guy. Why don't you tell our parents that we want to take us to the moon? He's like, no, no, no. Uh, You have to do it yourself because you're you're young men and you have to. As part of growing up, is is facing your parents and telling them this is what you want to do in life. Which it's not a bad lesson. It's certainly something that young people need to learn how to do. Right? It's something you you know that's sort of taught in you know in Boy Scouts. Is that that aspect of growing up and taking responsibility and all that. But the way it's done here, it's like very. It, it's it's really like a lesson. It's, like, it's like you're in civics class or something. A lot of this, you know, even the stuff on like on patent law and stuff and it's like yeah you're going to be an adult soon you have to understand the way you know contracts work and you have to understand the way patents work and yeah I developed this technology for this company and for the government but I still have the rights to this and this is why we can use it and and if you you know you got I'm swearing you to secrecy I'm asking you to take a vow but if you feel morally obligated to break this vow that you have to do that because it's your duty it's that aspect of the of this novel that for me is a little bit um off-putting and i I think it comes from the fact that Heinlein's trying to shift from those really great science fiction stories he wrote before the war to a, a younger audience now i do think young people wrote read astounding and they're not like mature in the sense that they're you know they're not limited to adult audiences young people can read sixth column or or beyond this horizon just fine in fact many probably did but these these books these juvenile books are targeting younger right, right readers explicitly and Heinlein felt the need to be a little more didactic and and I, and I think it doesn't always work it makes that first half of the novel a bit of a, a slog to get through the second half I think it does improve because we do get action and we do get uh, the Nazis on the moon aspect of it so I think I, I, I'll be a little more high on the novel maybe next time and I, now when I first read this I I didn't hate it I didn't just like I noticed everything I, I mentioned now then but I basically uh, like supported what the novel was trying to do and I really did like the Nazis on the moon stuff that's that's interesting the idea that there are that after World War two that Nazis have survived they certainly did right you have operation paperclip you have um, nazi survivalists in europe and you have many former nazis who went and you know were recruited to work in institutions in the united states um you know this philip dick idea that the empire always lives right there's little hints of it here um and and that i like i just think it's so long to get there and it's um just a little too blatant that it is you know let's teach young men good lessons and and i don't know why heinlein is so obsessed with that because um he's always got that kind of luxury aspect to his writing um but it's worse here i think um so i think the fact that he's he he kind of lets the worst aspects of his of his uh you know his his kind of lecturing uh come off here, right? Even like the whole safety aspect in the beginning, right? So the, the opening scene is they're shooting off this rocket. The boys are shooting off this rocket, an experimental rocket, and it fails. It seems to do well. They they seem to have some success, but it ends up being a rocket failure, and there's an explosion, and there's an injured man. It turns out to be Cart Graves, but after they realized they injured some guy even though they had signs up they are like no we're gonna have to pack up this uh, club because it's just too dangerous we can't risk the, the lives of any other people um, rather than seeing that as a problem that solved their immediate reaction is you know we got to do the right thing because we're we're young moral kids and it's only because Cargraves then recruits them very conveniently just happened to be showing up you know with this idea in his head you know and then he's able to recruit them for the you know for the for the for the moon uh voyage so that's just another example i think of uh, this and there's a lot of them in the like my favorite my maybe my this actually i don't know i think yeah it's in this first half of the book one of the most like groan inducing parts of this is where despite they're taking this this trip to the moon which probably isn't going to take that long you know It's, it's what three days to the moon in the in the apollo program It was like the whole mission was like a week, right? Um, Despite that, um, now it's stretched out a little bit longer here, but it's still like, oh, we got to continue with your education, even though we're going to the moon. So we're going to pack up like algebra books and calculus books in the rocket ship. So you can continue, you know, your classes. And Cargraves is going to take over being the teacher. So you don't fall behind in your studies or something. And it's kind of preposterous. It's like these guys are going to the goddamn moon. You know, they're obviously learning a lot of math as they do that. That's, you know, you don't have to sit there and open up the textbook. And, And it's like, yeah, you can have fun on your trip to the moon, but don't forget your studies. It's very important. It's that aspect of it that I think is a little annoying it's it's, it's highline being annoying and Heinlein's always annoying but this is it comes off really annoying here and I, I think it improves with the later juveniles i think he just does a better job of integrating these lessons and this kind of these moral didactic aspects of his writing into the story and into the characters a little bit better later on the characters are more memorable actually i i there's i, I, I sort of know these characters names what are they? Yeah, Art and Mori, Ross, Cargraves, yeah. And then the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis are gonna be fun. We'll talk about them next time. So anyways, what else to say besides that main big picture that I spelled out for you? Um, oh, the science. So I actually did ask a science teacher um, why there isn't nuclear uh, propulsion. And basically, the answer I got, which, you know, I didn't know much about this. I guess I had this question myself. Um, is that nuclear energy is kind of just dispersed in all directions, right? It can be a good explosion, but that actually can't sustain a, 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 a you know, enough enough consistent energy to get you out to, you know, to, to leave orbit or to leave um, the gravity well of Earth. Um, it's it can be it can turn a turn turn a turbine, right? We can get energy from it, electricity, but essentially it's just the steam engine, right? It's the same steam turbine, it's the same basic technology, it's a different source of energy to to propel the turning of the of you know, to, to, to spin the turbine, coal or oil or however it is. It's it's basically the same thing, but it's it's not very good for a propulsion. Good for explosions and, and energy, perhaps. So there's that aspect of it. So the science seems a little optimistic here. Um, it, it, I don't think it's fully explained. I didn't get a clear idea of how it works. It's just some device is going to um, contain the, the nuclear reaction and, and use it as a source of propulsion. But that's fine. That We need some way in 1947 in the post-1980s. Uh, atomic age uh, after we already have the bomb after we have uh, these developments in nuclear energy you know it's not that surprising that heinlein is thinking and we know he wrote re- when he rewrote a lot of his old stories from before the war to for publication and collections or to be reworked into the novels he does add uh, atomic energy in various ways right i think he does that with the 6 column rewrite he does it uh like in blow-ups happen i think he He does it in a lot of... Maybe Blow-Ups Happen was always uh, looking forward to nuclear energy. But there's other stories in which he he puts the bomb in retroactively uh, when it was rewritten for other collections. So he's definitely impacted by the bomb and impacted by by the Atomic Age enough that he rewrote some of these stories. And it's not surprising that the first novel that comes out after the war is going to... um, Gravitate towards that, so that is is fine, I guess. Um, the name of the ship Galileo. Uh, obviously, we see hints of Galileo in his other properties, like especially, I guess, universe would be the best example of that, where uh, Galileo is directly called out by a character, inadvertently. The character obviously never knows about Galileo, but makes the same claim that it still moves, and, and we have a character who makes a discovery makes an observation and is uh suppressed is uh um censored because of that so uh galileo is on his mind the thing is galileo doesn't seem to uh have that connection to rocketry um so much so it's just taking a pinnacle of the scientific revolution uh to represent this this uh ship that's going to go to be the first people on the moon. Um, and that's fine too. It's definitely important to Heinlein this Galileo. I I think he comes up enough in, in the story, um, or in his stories to, uh, to say that, that he's, Galileo seems to be his favorite scientific revolutionary, I suppose. There's a little bit on economics here, uh, early on. Of course we have Cargraves is working for Uh, a company that's somehow involved in, in nuclear energy and he doesn't really agree with their uh, privatization of the, of the technology. So he ventures on his own, but he still remains loyal to his contract and doesn't want to. And only he kind of wrote out of his contract, this, this innovation. So he kept this patent for himself when he broke up with that company. So it's very legalistic. I guess that goes back to kind of the moral aspects of the novel, which, uh, is, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but it does come back to that. It's like, this is the proper way to be as an employee. You got to honor your contracts. You got to um, honor your commitments, but at the same time, think ahead, think forward, you know, get that patent for yourself, right? Um, Also, we deal with economics is, is the question of who's going to do this, who's going to go to the moon. And so the three options are, obviously, historically, it was governments that did this. I'm still skeptical of private capital, if it's not just heavily basically a subcontractor for the government of going to the moon in the future. Uh, SpaceX is basically exists because the government uses them as a subcontract, you know, a subcontractor for their programs, right? Uh, instead of doing things directly in house in NASA, which is the trend of, of states these days, right? The army, you know, soldiers don't peel potatoes anymore. They, they hire contractors who come in and serve those meals. That's just the way government's being run, private prisons, all that kind of stuff is part of the neoliberal privatization program. Still government money, uh still government funds, but the you know, the profits of it go to corporations. I I don't I generally don't think that's a good thing. I think we should contain keep this stuff in the government. Uh you know. Or have tax policies that encourage innovation, like the Bell Labs. That was because of tax policy, in my understanding of it. It's, uh, you, you had a lot of innovation on the Bell Labs. I think they're mentioned here, actually. Why did you have that? It's because corporate tax rates were so high. There's no real reason to take a lot of that profit. Take it a lot of profit. It's going to be taxed very heavily, or you wouldn't want to give it to CEO incomes because tax rates were 90% over whatever 400,000 or half a million, whatever it was, the tax rates were so high, you, there's no reason to take a salary higher than that amount. So companies could then invest that wealth into just pure research. Um, and you know, that's, so still government has a role there in, in fostering this, this kind of creativity and innovation. Uh, we can look at all, a lot of the innovations of the post-war era they came out of military research and and um that kind of stuff so but anyways uh, we got three groups here that can go to the moon one is the government and we're told no, the government's not going to do it, at least not in the short term the other is private corporations they're not going to do it because there's no like bottom line profit involved it's not it's not presented as very expensive i think cargrave says like Company he worked for estimated it would cost like a million and a half bucks in 1947 dollars. I still don't think that's very much. Uh, I think he vastly underestimated how much it would cost to go to the moon. But he says they would never do it because they can't open up like a Starbucks on the moon. So there's not any minerals. It's it can't do that. So who can do this? Well, five dudes. Four four basically slaves and and Cargraves. Four volunteers. And Cargraves working out the calculations on the back of a napkin in their garage, digging up spare parts of an old like V two rocket or something that that's going to that that can do it, right? Because the private enterprise, the entrepreneur, can do that. So I just don't see much evidence. That's just fantasy. It seems to me um, that's Highline maybe really believes that that's probably maybe thought that's where it would come from. But I think he's right to point out corporations aren't going to do it because. Uh, there's not money to be made in space. I, I I talked to a friend when I was living in Hangzhou, a coworker. He taught economics, and he was strict believer that like corporations will go to space because it's monetizable. And the argument would be like like we could have tourism or mining asteroids. And it's like, you know how far off we are from mining asteroids, and even if you could, like the minerals you'd get from those asteroids. Would it ever be bare the cost? Um, would it ever be worth the cost? I, I believe there's probably a lot of resources up in the asteroids, but just how much money would it take to get that back? I mean, spaceflight's so expensive, you know. In the Apollo program, they're so careful about like the weight of things, right? Everything had to be really efficient because any extra pound of on that rocket was going to, you know, cost you like a million dollars more or whatever. So. I just don't buy it. Uh, I don't buy space tourism. You know, there are space tourists, but I don't think it's ever gonna be to sustain an economy of, of any scale. So ultimately it's gonna be public initiative by governments is the way it's historically been done and the way I think it's continuing to be done. There's no private there's no private interest that's going to create something like the the Hubble Space Telescope or whatever new telescope has released it. I forget the name of it. So um, I guess that's an interesting aspect in the early part of the story, but yeah, it, it's not great. I, I I do think it gets a little more spicy in the second half of the story when we kind of get into the politics of it. There's still still very didactic. We still have things like they claim the moon Wait, for the UN, which is interesting. I, I think that's we've got to give Heinlein credit for that. Not he's not Cargraves doesn't claim it for the United States, but for the the U.S. and the United Nations, right? It's claimed for all humanity. I think that's a valuable thing. Um, but I guess we'll get to that. I'll have to think more about it. But I don't have that much more to say about the first half of the novel. It's kind of throwaway. In fact, you could probably pick it up at Chapter 9 or 10 with the with the rocket taking off and in get the meat of the story uh, in terms of plot because a lot of the beginning part is really just recruiting this team getting permission from parents and then kind of doing the the science work and 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 the garage rocket building um and preparing the ship It, it takes a it takes Heinlein a long time to get there but I guess that's it for now um so it's it's it It feels good to be over that hump of the early Heinlein astounding works uh to be in these novels but it, I think it's just unfortunate we have to start with kind of a right it's not a downer it's just starting with something that's not as exciting or interesting as some of the other um tales that he wrote for young people I'm not that up on like Ya, writing these days. I know there's a lot of it. I work at a high school, so I see a whole shelf, shelves and shelves of them at the library, and they're all well-read, so they're popular. I don't know if they still have that didactic message. I think many of them still sort of do. The, the stuff I've kind of consumed secondhand through like movies and whatever. It seems there are, are is lessons there, it's just not so blatant, right? They're, it's going to be you know, young adult writers are always going to have to think about their audience terms of the, and, and think about them as people who are still forming it's not just about the language they're they're using in the in the writing it's in the characters and the plotting there are lessons whether it's representation or about resistance or something like that there's still going to be a didactic message in a lot of that and and i think fiction can have that that's fine it's just stunts so weird and awkwardly in this this particular book so um that's it for now um yeah i'll talk about the rest of rocket ship galileo in the next episode um but thanks for listening to my thoughts about the first half i think it sets up the novel pretty good um check it out if you haven't already it is missable i think but it's it's if you're a completionist you gotta read it and i think part of the reason maybe i'm down on this is the second time i've read this recently if it had been the first time i think i would have maybe been a little more enthused but it was a little bit of a drag trying to trying to get through this a second time but anyways um that's it for now i'll I'll see you next time when i finish up this novel thanks for listening